Welcome to the Words for Life podcast, which highlights the preaching and teaching ministry of Liberty Heights Church. Today's message centers around an encounter that Jesus had with a tax collector named Zacchaeus shortly before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Many people undoubtedly remember the children's church song about Zacchaeus, but the significance of his interaction with Jesus should not be overlooked in Jesus' journey to the cross. Join Pastor Brad Cunningham as he teaches from Luke chapter 19 in a message titled, Big Grace for a Little Man. Well, thank you for joining us for week two, the series we kicked off last week titled Journey to the Cross that we're uh, wrapping up on Easter. And so uh, we looked last week and realized that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus said these words, that he's set his face toward Jerusalem. And as he began that journey towards the cross in Jerusalem, uh, he had all kinds of things he taught, all kinds of encounters he had as he traveled southward from uh, up north down to Jericho uh, in between chapter 9 and chapter 18. And uh, the first place we looked on that encounter he had as he began to enter Jericho was an encounter with a blind man named Bartimaeus last week. Well, this week, we're just going to be one chapter over in Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn there with me this morning uh, to Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus in a message titled, Big Grace for a Little Man. And if we're honest... That's all we know about Zacchaeus, right? If I asked you this morning, I said, hey, we're going to take a quiz. What do you know about Zacchaeus? Most of you would say, here's all I know. He was a wee little man, right? That's all that we know about Zacchaeus. But don't feel too bad about that because uh, Luke is the only gospel account who tells us of Zacchaeus and uh, the exchange is just limited to these verses. So there's not a tremendous amount written about Zacchaeus outside of this little passage. And so because that's true, I thought we should probably preach about Zacchaeus from Luke's gospel this morning. So let's look together at Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 10. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save The lost. So last week in Jesus' journey to the cross, he's entering into uh, Jericho, where he has that encounter with Bartimaeus. Now, uh, here with Zacchaeus, he has entered uh, the city. Uh, This is right before his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. And uh, what our pastors have learned in studying uh, through the timeline of Jesus here is there's not widespread agreement on what all days are. There's a debate last week. Was that Thursday with Bartimaeus? Was it Friday? Uh, Some have argued this was Friday here in this encounter with Zacchaeus. Others have argued that it actually took place on the Sabbath. But what we do know is it's right before the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We're not sure how long it would have taken Jesus to walk from Jericho to Jerusalem, but just like last week, 
The timestamp of the exact day and time this occurred is not the most important truth to glean from this passage this morning. So this morning, I want us to see three important truths in the journey of sinners becoming saints. And the first truth I want you to see in this passage is this, is that meeting Jesus requires a response. Over the past couple decades of church history, uh, there was a movement that began to break forth into churches all across the country starting in the late 80s, originating, uh, some would argue, out of Willow Creek Community Church in Chicago, and it was what known as the seeker-driven movement. And the seeker-driven movement was basically, hey, whatever it takes short of sin to get people into your church, that's what you should do. If you're going to preach anything that's offensive, you should skip over that because people won't come back. And so that was a part of the seeker-driven churches even describe themselves. We're a seeker church, and so they never viewed the worship service as an opportunity to equip the saints. They viewed it as a, every weekend was an evangelistic crusade for those who don't know Jesus Christ. And we could list all kinds of well-known pastors and ministries who subscribe to a seeker-driven style of ministry. We could also very quickly compile a list of well-known pastors and ministries who oppose the seeker-driven ministry. Most of those guys, their last name just so happens to rhyme with MacArthur, all right? So, but what, what, one of the arguments against a seeker-driven mentality is based on the truth in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, which says this, no one seeks after God. No one seeks after God. Now, I've never gotten bent out of shape about that whole conversation. To me, seekers are just people who are spiritually curious, but they're only spiritually curious because God is drawing them to himself. John chapter 6, verse 44 says this, No man can come to me unless the Father draws him. And so I want you to be clear what's happening in this passage, this exchange uh, with little Zach, all right? Rightly understood. Jesus here is the seeker, and Zacchaeus is the one being drawn, and Zacchaeus responds to the call of God as he's drawing him to himself in this encounter with Jesus. Now, I've been doing this a little while, so I'm very aware there's tension and debate about the sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation, and the reality we have a ability to make real choice with real response out of a volitional will. There's all kinds of mystery about that. And I'm well aware some of you have that all figured out so you don't have to email me after service, all right? But let's not get hung up on what is debatable at the expense of understanding and embracing what is clear in this passage. Let me paint a little clearer picture. When you understand who Zacchaeus was, then you understand the humility of the response of him responding to Jesus as the seeker. Look at verse 2 again in this description of Zacchaeus that goes well beyond a wee little man. All right, what does verse 2 say about Zacchaeus? Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Tells us two things. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And so what verse 2 tells us about Zacchaeus is this, is that he was a tax collector, but also uh, he was the chief tax collector. Now, those two facts can lead us to conclude three outcomes about Zacchaeus' life. Number one, he was rich. Number two, he was powerful. Number three, he was hated. 
And let me tell you how I know that based on how tax collection worked in the Roman Empire. In order to have a tax franchise over a region, you had to purchase that from Rome. And so automatically, the Jewish people hated Zacchaeus and other tax collectors because they were Jewish by birth, but they were literally going to work for the enemy. They were going to work for oppressive Rome, pagans, right? And they're working, and these people are just living. How, how could you do that, Zacchaeus? We grew up together. Our parents knew each other. We went to the same elementary school. We played Little League. I don't know if they played. We rode camels together, right? Whatever, right? And you're selling us out. You're working for the Romans, and you're, a Jew. you're one of us, and you're working for the enemy. Rome would set a certain amount in every region that had to be uh, gathered by the tax collector, and they would forward that on back to Rome. And so what would happen is, whatever else he could collect over above that amount that was due back towards Rome, he could just put that in his pocket, and that's exactly what Zacchaeus and other tax collectors did. And they found this out, and, and all of a sudden, as you can imagine, this became a formula for corruption in collecting taxes. Aren't you glad that's not true anymore, praise God, right? little bitter I owed this year so but and that's exactly what they did they, they begin to do the math and say well the more things we can tax the more money we can put into our pockets Rome's happy because we're putting more there but we're also putting more in their pockets and so uh, they would tax uh, every wheel on a person's cart they would tax every axle they would tax the animals pulling the cart they would tax every product that was bought and sold and in every way imaginable and so what happened is the tax collectors became filthy rich because only a percentage of that they had to forward back to Rome and the rest they would put in their pockets at the exploit of their own people the Jews being a tax collector was not a crime often in scripture when we encounter tax collectors who begin to follow Jesus they're not told to stop collecting taxes so collecting taxes was not a crime the crooked way in which they were doing it was the sin uh, issue there and so because they were crooked they were absolutely despised you say how despised they couldn't attend the synagogue Can you imagine not liking someone so much that you would stand outside the doors this morning and say, you're not welcome here. They were considered ceremonially unclean. They were social outcasts. People wouldn't get near them because they were considered uh, unclean. And so as a result of that, the other people they hung out with were also ceremonially unclean people. So when Zacchaeus would come down the road, people would move to the other side of the road. He was not welcome in church. That's how despised Zacchaeus and other tax collectors were. That's why in the scriptures, it often lumps together tax collectors and sinners. They were unclean. He was hated. But not only was he hated, he was powerful. Verse 2 describes him as the chief tax collector. In other words, all the tax collectors in the region that he had franchised out from Rome uh, reported to him on the org chart. So not only did they report to him in a structure of authority, but here's what else they had to do. Uh, all the taxes they collected before they sent it to Rome because he was the chief tax collector, they had to give him a cut. Zacchaeus was the sales manager at the dealership. 
Hey, whatever you sell, you get to keep some. The boss keeps some, and I'm the manager. I'm going to keep a little for myself. That's exactly what's going on here. He was rich, he is powerful, and he is powerfully hated. That paints a little different picture of Zacchaeus than just a wee little man, doesn't it? Not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense, Zacchaeus was a big man. No doubt Zacchaeus didn't have to climb trees for anyone, let alone Jesus. And here what we see in these first few verses is a man who dares to show up in a huge crowd of people. Remember last week what we learned is there's a huge mob of people all traveling toward Jerusalem for the Passover. So in this huge crowd of people is this guy who's ceremonially unclean, who does not go out in public. When he goes out in public, he's hated by everyone. Here's a guy who's rich, he's powerful, and yet he risks being hated by everyone and the humiliation of being too small to see that he climbs up into a tree. And so a response is required of Zacchaeus to have this encounter with Jesus. And guess what this morning? The same thing is true of you. Zacchaeus had to choose to believe that despite being hated and considered and called unclean, he was not so unworthy that he could not encounter Jesus. Despite being so rich and powerful and successful, He had to also decide that he was not so great that he didn't need to see Jesus as he passed by. And if you're here this morning, that's your story too. If you're here and you don't know Christ, there's only one of two reasons why. And you say, well, there's lots of me. Listen, I can put all your reasons and excuses into two categories. Number one, you think you're too bad. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've done it with. You don't know where I was last night. You wouldn't be saying those things. Listen, I promise you, you were not more hated or worse or unclean than Zacchaeus. And the other excuse you have is you think you're too good. Too upstanding. Too successful. I've got too many things together. I don't have any needs outside of Jesus. Listen, when Jesus passes by, there is not a person who is too good. There is not a person who is too bad. All of us in the room are Zacchaeus. There is a literal stink bug on my notes. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're welcome. Better you than me, brother. I just want to say that. That bug was unclean. Little Zacchaeus on the ground. How you like that, little man? (laughs) That wasn't in the notes. I just want to share that with you. That was a gift from the Lord. When I think about Zacchaeus being... Not too bad to save and not too good that he didn't need saving. I could not help but think of the quote from Tim Keller who wrote this. He said, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Praise God, that is good news. But it requires a response on your report as Jesus comes by and you either sit back and say no I'm I'm too good I don't need him or you'll say I'm too unclean I'm not worthy of his grace but meeting Jesus always requires a response of humility just like Zacchaeus but what happens next would have been shocking even to Zacchaeus 
when he discovered that Jesus loves sinners. I want to say something that I've said multiple times over the past several years because I think it needs to be said. We're in a moment in our culture where Christians have lost influence in our culture. You don't have to wonder about that, worry about that, debate about that. It's statistically true. And the reason is because by percentage, every generation, there are less Christians. And so if you want to see the tide change and culture change toward a more Christian society, uh, then the reality is there has to be more people one to Christ in every single uh, generation. And we don't understand that. You know how no one understand that? We get angry. We get angry at non-Christians because they don't hold to Christian values. Let me ask you a question. If your job or your school transferred you to a Muslim country, said, hey, take it or leave it, you're going to work here, and all of a sudden you got transferred to a Muslim country, would you all of a sudden hold to an Islamic worldview because you were living there geographically? What about legislating morality? Doesn't make a place more Christian. Again, if you got transferred to a Muslim country ruled by Sharia law, would you hold to Muslim values now? Because that's the law of the land, so therefore, I've got to abide by that. So, no, of course you wouldn't. So what's the answer? The answer is more people coming to know Jesus Christ. And the likelihood of that happening is really low if we continue to view unbelievers as the enemy to be destroyed and not the mission field to be loved. And if you're living that way, I want you to hear me. Everybody look up here. If you're living that way, you did not learn that from Jesus. You learned that from your political news source. Because the scripture clearly says in this exchange, Jesus loves sinners. What I love about this Verses 5 through 8 just doesn't make that claim in Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus. They openly called a sinner. It models practically how does that claim play out. Because here's what we're afraid. What we're afraid is if we start loving sinners and doing all those things, then somehow we're, we're going to be unclean too, right? Listen, what makes you clean is not who you hang around with. It's who you belong to. And so what does it look like to model Jesus and love sinners well? Well, you see right in this passage, three things in verses 5 through 8. Uh, number one, you will have to invite people into your life. We live in a culture where there is all kinds of skepticism about organized religion. There's been all kinds of abuse scandals that every single denomination has been affected by that. And because there's such suspicion, here's the reality. The first church most people are open to attending is probably either your living room or your backyard barbecue or your driveway. Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Notice what Jesus did not do. He did not walk by and hold up a sign, sinner. He didn't yell out Bible verses from across the street. What does he say? He calls him by name, which without scripture, they, they, didn't even, they just called him a tax collector, right? And a sinner, that was his name. 
And he basically says, hey, I would love to get to know you. I would love to to learn about you. I would love to spend some time with you. And remember what we just learned about Zacchaeus, how ceremonially unclean he was? This is the first time a ceremonially clean person would have ever shown up at his house. This is huge. And that's why we see the response in verse 6. Look at verse 6. So he hurried fell out of the tree. That's what it should say, amen? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Here's why he received him joyfully. Because let's be honest, if you've been told your whole life you were ceremonially unclean and that literally God of the flesh is passing you by and he says, hey, I'm gonna stop by your house today, you would have been a little freaked out, right? But he's joyful, why? Because Someone who should have hated him morally took an interest in him personally. And so let me ask you a question. This is a question I've asked myself this week. Do non-Christians in your circle of influence know that they're deeply valued by you even if they don't hold to your values? And if the answer is no, they they know what I'm against. Let me just uh, speak into that. You're doing it wrong. People can know what we're against and at the same time, there's not compromise, they can know what we're against and also know we're for them as people made in the image of God who have inherent dignity and value. When I read verses five and six and this incredible, incredible exchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus. I'm reminded of the testimony of Rosaria Butterfield in her book, The Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. She was a PhD tenured professor at Syracuse University, incredibly brilliant. She was a diehard feminist, advancing the cause. She'd been for decades in a same-sex relationship. And her whole worldview was in direct opposition to the Bible. And then, she meets Jesus. And now, she's writing from a biblical worldview, some of the best stuff out there on gender and sexuality. She's actually the wife of a Presbyterian pastor. And we say, well, how, how, did that, how do you explain that? It wasn't because she was uneducated, she hadn't done the research, you know, she just said, no, she was brilliant. How did that happen? Well, number one, she met Jesus, but I want you to listen to what she said. They said, Rosaria, you were brilliant. You were not ignorant about Christianity and its claims. What is it that opened your heart to the truth of the gospel? And here's what she said. She said it was a no-name, small church, Presbyterian pastor and his wife who invited me into their home every week for dinner and let me ask questions and loved me until I came to the answer. They invited me into their life and they loved me before I knew Jesus, which by the way, that's exactly the gospel, Romans chapter five, verse eight, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what does it look like to love sinners like Zacchaeus? You invite them into your life. You don't stand across the street and pick at what they're doing wrong. Listen, they don't know Christ, they don't know any better, literally. You're the problem with the picketing? You know what it says? You're the problem, right? No one ever holds up a sign that says, I'm the problem, it's me. 
And so we invite people into our life. And let me just say this, in a culture of rampant division and rampant hatred and an epidemic of loneliness, I believe this, that gospel-centered hospitality is the open door or platform to biblical evangelism. And so we see Jesus inviting Zacchaeus into his life. He just walked by and threw out some verses. He said, hey, I'm going I'm to get to know you. I'm, I'm actually going to show up at your house And so what happens? Well, you got to prepare yourself because guess what? You're going to have to push through some criticism. Nothing more clearly illustrates the difference between the heart of God and those who are wrapped up in their own self-righteousness than the outrage of the crowd recorded in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says when they saw this exchange between Zacchaeus and Jesus in verses 5 and 6, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who's a sinner. Years ago when I first started going to church, I didn't didn't grow up in church at all. When I first started going to church, before I was even in ministry, I'll never forget an older lady having a conversation with another lady about a younger lady in the church. And she was obvious disdain to the point where her voice was elevated to the point where she didn't realize that people sitting two or three pews behind her could hear this conversation and this older lady describing this younger lady in the church to a lady sitting next to her to the point where I could hear, she said, well, you do know that before she started coming to church, she was an exotic dancer, don't you? And had I known it at the time, I would have quoted her Matthew 21, 31. I will tell you the truth. Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. I have a friend. He had a major split in his church. Large church. And they had a huge contingent of homeschool families in their church. And they began to reach out to unchurched students in that church. And they start seeing some radically unchurched kids showing up church, giving their lives to Christ. And guess what happened? All these homeschool families uh, went to the student pastor and said, hey, we don't want our kids around these ungodly kids. Matter of fact, that's the whole reason we homeschool our kids. And if you don't ask them to leave, uh, we're going to leave. And we're going to take all these families in our network with us. And that's exactly what they did. Listen, let me let you know a little secret here this morning. Those homeschool parents weren't making disciples. They were running a Pharisee factory at their house. And don't send me angry emails. We homeschool our kids too, all right? That's why they're weird. I just want to put that out there, all right? (laughs) Our children's hearts aren't pure and need protected. They're wicked and need transformed. And part of that transformation is learning to model the heart of a Savior who loves sinners like Zacchaeus and us. You know what that means? That means you may even have to go over to their house according to verses 5 and 6 and get to know them. You may even have to sit down and have a beer together. I was just kidding. Relax. Right? <laughs> I got even quieter than I hoped. It's like. Relax, 
If it's Odul's or near beer, I don't, what, I, don't even, grape, I don't even drink grape juice, I'm so holy, all right? So, but when you invite those people into your life, guess what? There are going to be some Pharisees, maybe even some you go to church with, they're going to criticize you. The word grumble in verse 7 in the original Greek language means an intense disapproval. If we had time, I could show you all the places just in Luke's gospel alone where Jesus is criticized by self-righteous religious people. And if they did that to Jesus because he loves sinners, then guess what? They're going to do it to you as well. But don't get too discouraged. That just means you're in good company. But it still hurts. And so how do we push through that criticism, uh, this third conviction, uh, which is this. You have to believe that anyone can change. Remember the unflattering picture we painted of little Zach there in the first four verses? Greedy, crooked, prideful, unclean, hated by everyone. Remember that guy? With that in your mind, look at verses 8 and 9. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, if, right? If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll restore it sevenfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Listen, let me ask you a question. Does it get any better than that? The answer is no, it does not. He didn't get saved because he did those things. He did those things because he got saved. Those things are the fruit of repentance in verse 8. He was a greedy guy. He comes to know Christ. He repents. All of a sudden, a greedy guy becomes a generous guy and says, hey, I'll just give this all to the poor. He was a crooked guy, ripping people off. And all of a sudden, a crooked guy is worried about integrity. He says, hey, if anybody I've defrauded, I'll restore it fourfold. And if you think repentance... Reconciliation is not possible for some people. Then hear me this morning. You do not believe in the power of the gospel. We love sinners because Jesus loved us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love sinners because we want to model the reality. It was the kindness of God that led us to uh, repentance. Uh, We love sinners. Why? Because we believe the gospel is so powerful that crooked tax collectors can become saints. We still preach a gospel where murderous Saul's can become apostle Paul's when they encounter the risen Savior. And so we model Christ and we see called to change. What? We love sinners. Listen, don't, please do not bind the, the myth that to love people well, you have to agree with everything they do. And here's the third truth, which is this, and I'll just spend a moment because it's pretty self-explanatory and we're gonna run out of time. Third truth I want you to see in this passage is this, is that following requires Fishing. There's an old saying that when it comes to following Jesus, if you're not fishing, then you're not following. Jesus said, Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
When I read verse 10 where it's so clear that the mission of Jesus and I want to live on mission with Jesus, you know, here's the question I I had to ask myself this morning. Listen, and I'm the pastor. I get paid to be spiritual, right? I spend most of my life with Christian people. You know what I had to ask myself this week? Brad, not, not Pastor Brad, Brad, when's the last time you invited someone to church? When's the last time you've shared Christ with someone? And I have, but, but not as often as I should. And I just had to come to a place of repentance. Because here's the deal. If I'm not a fisher of men, then I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ according to Scripture. And so if we're going to join Jesus in his mission, we have to be clear about why he came in the first place. Look at verse 10 quickly. Could not be any clearer. It says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I don't want to shame you about personal evangelism, how you should do this, and I've done that before. I want to equip you, and so let me just uh, equip you with one simple statistic. You know, over the years, it has not been uncommon for, for people to come to me and say, hey, I've got a person that doesn't know Christ, and I've been burdened for them, I've been sharing with them, I've been inviting them, I've been praying for them, and, and I think they would appreciate if you, pastor, went and visited them. <laughs> let me let you know a little secret. They're not as excited as you are for to send me. Listen, I might as well, if I go and knock on someone's door, and I've done it, if I go visit someone's hospital, go to the, I've done all those things. Listen, I might as well be wearing a shirt that says, Jehovah Witness, right? <laughs> Let me give you some stats. Less than 3% of the people who said I was influenced to receive Jesus Christ was because of a pastoral visit. Less than 3%. Let me give you another stat that should encourage you this morning. Over 75% of the people who came to know the Lord, when they asked what influenced you to be open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, over 75% of the people responded this way. It was either a friend, a relative, or an associate. In other words, someone they already knew and trusted. You know who the best missionary in your circle of influence is? It's you. It's you. And I want us to recapture that to follow Jesus is to fish for men. And so if you want to be a faithful fisher, you want to join Jesus in his mission to seek and save the lost, like verse 10 says, then then here's your homework, right? This is homework. Go home. Make a list of every unsaved friend, relative, or associate and commit to praying for them daily and invite them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Research says they're open. Zacchaeus says Jesus is able. All we have to have is a burden. Remember this old song? Throw out the lifeline across the dark wave. There is a brother whom someone should save. Somebody's brother 
Oh, who then will dare to throw out the lifeline, his peril to share? Throw out the lifeline, throw out the lifeline. Someone is drifting away. Throw out the lifeline. Throw out the lifeline. Someone is sinking today. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, then I want you to hear me clearly. Zacchaeus' life proves you are not so good that you don't need saved. You're not so bad that you can't be saved. And if you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, then I want to share this with you clearly. Someone is praying for you to come to know the Lord and Savior today. Would you pray and receive Jesus Christ today? Would you open up your heart as Jesus is passing by this morning and receive him by grace? Would you accept the Lord this morning? For those of you who do know Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to pray a dangerous prayer this morning. Would you pray this prayer, Lord, burden my heart for people who are far from you. Would you pray that? Would you pray this dangerous prayer? God, give me a love for sin, sinful people because that's exactly who I was before Jesus found me. Father, I pray this morning That God, we would not be content with the title of followers unless we're also known as fishers. And so, Lord, may we live with the urgency that life is fleeting, it is a vapor, it's a puff of smoke, a blade of grass, a wisp, it is all those things. And there will be people today who slip out into a Christless eternity Lord they are sinking today and so Lord may we be faithful to find Zacchaeus all around us with all the strength and compassion in us May we throw out the lifeline. Name Jesus. And so, Lord, break our heart for what breaks yours. People who are far from you. Empower us to do what we could not and would not do left to ourselves. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.